Father, I'm just grateful this morning to uh, be able to gather as your church and to open your word and just be in this place, Lord, where we can mutually encourage one another to be in this place where we can study what you have to say to us and think about how this applies to our lives and think about how, Lord, we can live obediently to what your word says. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning as we look into Ephesians 4 and look really in particular to one small, seemingly simple verse uh, that, Lord, you would just open our eyes to all of the ways and all of the areas that, that this verse speaks into our lives. So, Father, we just pray for your spirit to help us in this time, Lord. And, and Lord, would you help us as a church, as we study Ephesians 4, just as, as a result of thinking about the things we're going to think about this morning, would you help us as a church to develop this instinct of humility and gentleness and patience and love? as we continue to live with one another and help each other grow in our love for you and our joy in you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So do you know what an axiom is? An axiom, right? An axiom is a, it's a universally accepted truth, right? It's a truth that does not need to be challenged. It doesn't need to be proved. It's a self-evident truth. So let me give you an example. The Declaration of Independence, drafted by Thomas Jefferson, signed by the founders of our country, contains a rather famous axiom. It says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, self-evident, doesn't need to be proved, that all men and women are created equal, right? So that statement is an axiom, right? We should affirm that. We should applaud that. We should be good with that statement being in the Declaration of Independence, even though it's a painfully ironic statement, given that, that most of the people who drafted that document owned slaves. But it is a truth that should be universally accepted. It is a truth that should not be challenged. We don't need to reconsider it or rethink it. It's self-evident. And because this truth is an axiom, what we can do is now be concerned with the consequences of that truth. So because it is self-evident that all men and women have equal dignity and, and uh, equal worth, the consequences of that truth should be that all men and women are viewed as equal, treated as equal, regarded as equal, defended as equal, given equal opportunity. There should be no such thing as a group of people who are oppressed or a group of people that have to experience systemic injustice, that should be the, the consequences coming out of that axiom, right? Tomorrow we celebrate the uh, birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it's a day where we celebrate his life and his work to lead our country, to be consistent with this axiom that is contained in our founding documents, and so for some, tomorrow is a time to recognize the great strides that our country has made in regards to living according to that axiom. And at the same time, tomorrow is a day that is a reminder 
of the frustration that there still are so many in our country who are blind to or they just simply don't want to accept the fact that yesterday's discrimination has present-day consequences and the continued discrimination that happens today. And what I have to say to that is this, is that it is the church, more specifically the local church, that should be the leader, right? The standard, the example to our world of what it means to really live our lives according to the axiom that men and women are created equal, right? The local church filled with people who look different from one another, who come from different cultures and backgrounds and upbringings, rich, poor, everything in between, varying preferences of food and art and hobbies, who have different stories, different struggles, all coming together. And what they have is an unwavering commitment to one another, an unwavering love for one another. Right, The local church's commitment to one another should scream the gospel or at least something to our world. That there's something that's otherworldly holding these people together in their commitment to one another. Uh, last week, we started a new series entitled Called to Belong. And as we said, to study through Ephesians 4. And in this study, we're seeking to understand the fact that every follower of Jesus is called to belong to a local church. And so last week, I gave an overview of everything we're going to study through Ephesians 4 and, and really tried to lay down some vision for us as a church when it comes to being faithful uh, to texts like Ephesians 4. So if you missed that, I, I really encourage you to go to our podcast or our website and listen to it. But we're going to look at, starting this morning, what we're going to look at is what it means that a faithful church is filled with people who are committed to one another. And Paul, who wrote this letter, the book of Ephesians, opens this section of the letter, chapter 4, by calling the church to live consistently with a particular axiom. All right, I want you to see it. All right, Ephesians 4, verse 1. Just look at this with me real quick. It says, I therefore, this is Paul speaking, a prisoner for the Lord. We think at the time he was imprisoned in Rome, writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. Urge you, remember, that's the second person plural. That's y'all, okay? So urge y'all, talking to the whole church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which y'all have been called. All right, so a couple of things to, to note in there. That word worthy that we see there, Paul is saying, all right, I urge all of you to walk in a manner that's worthy of this calling that's been given to you. That word worthy is the Greek word axios, which is where we get the word axiom from. That's why I'm using that word. And what Paul is saying here is, here's what I'm urging you to do. I want you to live your life consistent with this axiom that's been spoken over you this calling that you've been given, this truth that's undeniable, it does not need to be proved about you. I want you to live your life consistent with that truth. And so Paul uses chapters one to three in Ephesians to explain this axiom. What is it? And then in verses four to six, he helps us to understand how do we live according to that? And so I want to look at both of those. Let's look at this axiom that Paul's referring to. 
And then let's look at how Paul exhorts us to live according to that, starting here in Ephesians 4. Okay? And so here's the axiom that Paul is referring to. I'm just going to give it to you. Here it is. Uh, You have been reconciled to God in Christ, and because of that, you've been reconciled to one another. All right? There's the axiom. That's the truth. You have been reconciled to God in Christ, and because of that, you are reconciled to one another, right? That's the axiom that fuels the commitment that we have to one another in the church, and that is the axiom that fuels our unity and our equality in the church. All right, so let's explain it. Let's, let's look at it. Go to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. All right, we're going we're gonna to do some heavy Bible study here for just a few minutes, and then we'll talk about how we apply this. But go with me to Ephesians 2. Look at verse 13, Ephesians 2, 13. Paul says, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, so the, the, this is the axiom that, that Paul's referring to, okay? The way in which we are able to be reconciled to God is very clearly laid out here in verse 13 is through the blood of Jesus. So you've been reconciled to God in Christ through the blood of Jesus. All right, so Paul would earlier say in Ephesians 2 verse 1 that we are all dead in our trespasses and our sins. That because we've sinned against God, we're actually considered enemies of God. That's why reconciliation needs to happen. We're enemies of God because of our sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 actually says that we are children of wrath. And that word wrath is important because it's as bad as it sounds. We should take away from this word that God is angry with those who have sinned against him, and he is just, he is just to punish those who have sinned against him. So we're in this condition as mankind as sinning before God, and now we're enemies of God, and there's wrath upon us. That's the the picture that Paul paints in the beginning of chapter two. So all of mankind's in that state. And so here's the thing. We haven't even gotten to the good news yet in scripture, but we can already see that even in the bad news, the axiom that all men are created equal holds up. I mean, we are equal in our guilt before God and in our sin before God. No one is better, no one is worse, no one is superior, no one has the ability to kind of make a sweetheart deal with God. Everyone is equal. All of humanity is the same, even in the bad news. But there's good news, right? Because it is through the blood of Jesus that we're actually reconciled to God. So we can have peace with God. We can have a relationship with God where he is no longer angry with us, but he's now delighted in us. And that's achieved through what Jesus did on the cross. That when he went to the cross, he was punished by God in our place for our sins. God's anger toward our sin was exhausted onto Jesus. Although we were the guilty party, in God's grace, he allowed Jesus to take our place, to be our substitute, so that we could actually stand before God forgiven and fully reconciled. Ephesians 1 actually goes as far as to say, adopted into God's family. 
that your sins aren't just forgiven, but God's actually brought you into his family. He's delighted in you. He cherishes you, and you're never going to be exiled from him again, adopted into his family. So we are all reconciled to God in Christ through the blood of Jesus. We're equal in our sin, and we're equal as recipients of God's mercy, and we're equal as adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. God is equally, equally angry with sinful humanity and equally delighted in all of his children. And so, look at the rest of chapter 2. So we read verse 13. Look at verse 14, and let me read the rest of this chapter so we can connect these thoughts. Look at, look at what Paul says is a, is a ramification of this. Verse 14 in chapter 2. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When he uses the word both, he's specifically referring to the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay, two different ethnic groups, two different uh, groups that believe different things. But as those two groups come to faith in Christ, they become one person, right? There is reconciliation amongst groups that were enemies, all right, so that you can expand out to all of humanity. As we're enemies in Christ, we come together as uh, peace is given to us. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, that's Jesus, one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, that's through Jesus, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility between us and God and us and one another. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Okay, Every single human being stands before God equal in their depravity and sin, equal in their need for the cross of Jesus Christ. And every single Christ follower is reconciled to God, forgiven of their sin, adopted into God's family in the same way by the same Lord through the same gospel. And so every single follower of Jesus is now part of the same family bleeds the same forgiven blood and shares citizenship in the same kingdom, All right? In other words, we have been reconciled to God in Christ. And because of that, we are reconciled to one another. Notice that I did not say we're reconciled to God in Christ. And so now it's possible for us to be reconciled to one another. No, we are reconciled to one another. This is an axiom. There is peace between us. And anytime there's not peace between us in the church or we do not pursue peace and unity between us, we revert living to back before we knew Christ. Followers of Jesus who are not at peace with one another and do not pursue that peace live inconsistent, contradictory lives. 
They're, they're living something that's not consistent with this gospel axiom that's been spoken over us. So with that said, okay, put that down. This, this is the axiom. Here it is. Ephesians 4 is where Paul picks up and starts to begin to unpack. Then how do we live out this practically? And so from there, look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. And then we'll start talking about how we do this. Paul says this, So I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, how do we live consistently with this axiom that we're reconciled to God and to one another in Christ. Well, we live in such a way, verse three, where we're eager to maintain unity. We wanna protect this bond of peace. Paul repeats in verses four to six, the basis of all of that, right? The one body, one spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Right? We're all the same in same family. We bleed the same blood. We, we belong to the same kingdom. That's the basis and the specific way that we're eager to pursue this unity and preserve this peace between us is found in verse two. And that's where I just want to land for the rest of our time in verse two. Very specific. Paul says we live our lives and, and we interact with one another, verse two, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. So let me just simplify all of this for us. Because we are all the same in our need for the gospel and we are all the same as recipients of the redemption that's found in the gospel, our relationships with one another should be dominated by Ephesians 4.2. I mean, if we really believe this axiom about the gospel, if we really believe that we're all the same in our need of the gospel, then Ephesians 4.2 will dominate our relationships and our bond and our commitment to one another in the local church will be indestructible. A biblically faithful church is filled with people who are committed to one another and the church cannot have this kind of commitment to one another unless the gospel defines their relationships in Ephesians 4, 2, is just happening all over the place. I mean, we've all been there before. We have people in our lives where we've just begun to allow annoyance or bitterness or frustration with that person kind of grow in our hearts. Uh, it could be someone in the church, someone at the workplace, a spouse, your kids, a parent, a neighbor, anyone. We, we've, we have people in our lives that we hold grudges against. They've started to become someone that just grates on our nerves. Everything they do, we just kind of judge, assume the worst about them. We've lost respect for them. We're just annoyed by them. We don't like them. Right? I mean, if I were to wheel out a whiteboard for us, and you know I love whiteboards, if you were to just wheel out a whiteboard for us and, and have a brainstorming session of all of the things 
and all of the ways and all of the reasons why we just get frustrated with people and impatient and we just start to kind of judge them or think bad things about them. We could fill out several whiteboards if we just to list out the reasons, right? Both legitimate reasons, right? They've done legitimate things that have hurt us or frustrated us and that needs to be dealt with and illegitimate reasons, right? We're just being grumpy. I mean, how easy is, is it for us to begin to look down on other people? So let me give you a scenario. I want to tease a scenario out, a little case study for us. We can apply Ephesians 4.2 for it. Here's one that I've seen in the church many times, in multiple churches. Let's say there's a person in your community group, if you go to a community group, and that person typically dominates the discussion and they always talk about themselves. I hear chuckles. Every time your group gathers to do, you know, maybe a Bible study or to discuss the sermon or, or something else, this person has long answers and they seem to always kind of come back to themselves. Every time you gather to do prayer requests, they always have long prayer requests and it kind of takes away from others being able to share. And so over time, as you have seen this in your group, this has begun to grate on your nerves a little bit, just inside, you know, you just kind of get frustrated a little bit. Every time they share too much or talk about themselves, you get annoyed to the point where in your head, you've slapped them with a label, right? Uh, it's like there's a headline over them at all times that say, this person only cares about themselves, right? And we just kind of made that judgment inside of our hearts. We've all done it. And so this conclusion that you've drawn over this person impacts your entire relationship with them. You begin to interpret everything they say through this label that you've placed on them. When a group of people are getting together to hang out, you kind of hope they're not there. Maybe you even find an excuse not to spend time with them if they want to hang out with you. Maybe a few people in that group start to notice the same thing, so some chatter starts to begin. No one really intends to gossip, but no one really intends to do anything about it either. And so when a few people in a group begin to collectively label this person, that person begins to slowly but subtly get pushed out of a group dynamic. It can be hard to find community in the group and maybe even the broader church at that point. So this is just an example. I've seen this happen. And here's the question. What axiom, if we're doing that, are we living according to when we allow this kind of frustration to fester in our heart about others? And you can apply any scenario to it, any situation. Right, it's the axiom that says my comfort and my preferences and my needs are, are most important. Right, it's the very axiom that we have actually concluded that this person lives their life by. But if you apply Ephesians 4 to this situation and the word of God, what it's doing is it's urging us to here in this situation, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Live your life in a way that's consistent with the axiom that has been declared over your life. We are all the same in our need for the gospel. We're once children of wrath, but we, we deserve God's judgment. But in his grace, he's rescued us. He's forgiven us, forgiven us of our sin. We all stand reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to one another. Now we live together in community, seeking to help one another follow Jesus. So there it is. That's the actual truth. So when our lives are actually living within the self-awareness that the gospel axiom produces, Ephesians 4.2 becomes the fruit in our relationships with other people. And so as we reflect on how I've 
regarded this person in my community group, we have to ask ourselves, have we been humble and gentle? Have we been patient? Do we bear with this person in love? Ephesians 4.2 calls us to humility and gentleness. Do we see ourselves as better than this person? I don't always talk about myself, so I must be better. Are we, are we rejecting this gospel axiom that says that we're all the same in our need for Jesus Christ? And when we really think about it and let humility rule in our heart, we realize that we actually are the same and we're guilty of the very thing that we are accusing them of, only, only caring about ourselves, right? Uh, Ephesians 4.2 calls us to patience. Boy, we were quick to slap a label on that person, make up our minds about them. We didn't even get to know them better. We didn't even take time to learn their story, build a relationship with them. They rubbed us the wrong way a few times and all of a sudden our mind is made up about them. Man, praise God that he was patient with us and he gave us time to hear the gospel and respond and grow instead of just swift judgment over us. Ephesians 4.2 calls us to bear with one another in love. Our way of bearing with this person has been to judge them, maybe talk about them behind their back, and worst of all, stay silent and not address it. We love one another when we place one another's needs above our own, and we've placed our needs above theirs, especially by not being willing to address the situation. And so let's, let's trace the outcomes here. Let's look at the fruit uh, when we live with the axiom that my comfort and my spiritual growth and my preferences are the most important, and we allow that bitterness and frustration with that person to build in our hearts, and then we begin to see ourselves as better than them, we impatiently judge and label them, we bear with them by ignoring them, talking about them behind their back. What, what's the fruit that's produced by that when we do that in our hearts? I mean, is it is it Unity? Is it protecting the bond of peace? Is it demonstrating to the world that there's something unique about a gospel community? I mean, does this place, when we do that, really look differently than the world around us? Are people in the church spiritually growing? But when we live under a gospel axiom, and Ephesians 4.2 begins to dominate our relationships with one another. Although we might be bothered by this person, maybe we act in humility and gentleness towards them. And that humility generates a patience with them. We're not quick to label. We're not quick to, to judge them or form conclusions. We're not quick to write them off which then allows us to bear with them in love. We actually don't see them as an obstacle to what I want. We see ourselves as having a responsibility and our commitment to one another to help this person grow in Christ. Maybe with this person, this is a legitimate issue that needs to be addressed. And my ability to allow Ephesians 4 to rule in my heart in that situation and in my mind probably produces a context and a relational capital with this person that allows me to actually go and address it in love and gentleness. I mean, what's the fruit of Ephesians 4 too? I mean, man, it's, it's the unity in the church. The bond of peace is protected. 
people grow exponentially. Community will grow deep roots instead of subtly break down. We'll have a culture in the church of actually helping one another follow Jesus and not a culture of trying to impress everyone. And most importantly, the church's unity as they live according to this gospel axiom will be immeasurably attractive to a broken, divided, and angry world. You know what I want in this church? I, I want Ephesians 4.2 to become a verb in this church. I want this to become such a normal and expected part of our culture that when tensions rise, when conflict festers, when we get annoyed with one another, when our inevitable quirks and frustrating qualities come out, that we're quick to Ephesians 4 to one another. Right In the situation where you find yourself complaining about another person, gossiping about another person, that the person you're talking to would, would quickly stop you out of love and gently ask, hey, have you Ephesians 4 to this person? Have you put yourself in a place of humility and gentleness with them? Or do you view yourself as better? Have you had patience with them? Or are you jumping to conclusions a little too fast? Have you sought them out? Have you talked to them? Have you bared with them in love? Do you consider their needs as more important than your own? Are you committed to this person growing in Christ? What truth, what axiom are you living according to right now? So the question I want to ask is, how, how can we make Ephesians 4.2 a verb around here and in every part of our lives and how we interact with other people? Because it's really only the gospel that can produce this inside of us with others. And I honestly think for many of us here, it starts in our homes. Husband and wives, does Ephesians 4.2 dominate your relationship? Do you regard and treat one another with humility and gentleness? Are you patient with one another? Do you bear with one another in love? I mean, I know there's husband and wives here that they're frustrated and they're angry and they're hurt. And the axiom that is ruled in your house, it just might be the axiom that says that, that my comfort and my needs and my desires are first. And that's going to produce a home of tension and frustration and division. It's going to produce a home where the actual issues won't be addressed. And what would it look like for Ephesians 4.2 to begin to define your relationship with one another? Because it's when the gospel rules your home and Ephesians 4.2 rules your relationship where your hurt and your anger and the actual legitimate issues will get addressed when the fruit will actually come to fruition, not swept under the rug. And so if that's your marriage, you, you, here's what you need to do. You, you need to ask for help. As much as we don't wanna hear this, we need the church. We need others to help us to understand what's ruling my heart and what's ruling my actions. Your marriage isn't too far gone. Your joy can be restored in your marriage. But the question is, is are you, not your spouse, I'm asking you, are you willing to do that? To examine your heart, to let others speak in, to let Ephesians 4.2 begin to rule your relationship. I mean, what if the people of this church, just in all areas of life, our marriages, in the church, in our workplaces, our neighbors, if we just decided Ephesians 4.2 is gonna rule how I treat others, humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with others in love, 
right? Like I ref- when I go to the office, I refuse to give in to the workplace culture of bashing everyone. There's not gonna be that guy. And if they call me weird, fine. But I'm gonna let Ephesians 4.2 be what rules how I relate with others. I mean, think about how the credibility of the church's witness would increase exponentially if the people of the church let Ephesians 4.2 rule their relationships with one another and people outside of the church. And so Grace Hill, uh, we are a faithful church when we're filled with people who are committed to one another. And here's the deal. Ephesians 4.2 is the nitty gritty of our commitment to one another. It's where the rubber meets the road. All right, everyone who's married will tell you that it's easy to say your vow on your wedding day. Then it gets a little difficult, right? Reality sets in. Your own selfishness sets in. It gets harder. It's good, but it's hard. And it's the same in the church. It's easy to commit to a church. It's easy to develop new relationships. But we're people, right? We're gonna start to just annoy one another a little bit. Hard moments will come. And so this is where we truly learn, does the gospel dominate our love or does the world? Which, which one? What's the axiom we're living according to? And so what I wanna do for us is I just wanna pray for us as a church that, that we would live according to the gospel and that we would love and forgive one another as Christ has loved and forgiven us. So that would be the, the culture of this church as we explore Ephesians 4 and talk about what a faithful church is, that really at the root of it all is this truth that we've been reconciled to God in Christ. And because of that, we are reconciled with one another. We have everything we need to be committed to one another. Let me pray for us as a church that we'd be faithful to that. Father, this morning, as we just start to study Ephesians 4. And Lord, we look at this call that you've given us to to live with one another with humility and gentleness, with patience, and to bear with one another in love. Lord, I pray that you would just give our church a supernatural ability to live this out. Lord, if there are conflicts currently happening here, Maybe it's a conflict that is external and, and, and words have been exchanged, or maybe it's a conflict that's internal. Words haven't been exchanged, but frustration and bitterness is there. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would not be a church that deals with conflict by sweeping it under the rug or, or turning a blind eye or just staying silent and hoping that it will just kind of go away. But Lord, we would have boldness to be able to confront our differences and our conflicts because of the gospel. Because we have a bond and we have a unity that can't be broken. And Lord, the only way that that begins to happen in the church is, Lord, if we begin to love one another and interact with one another with humility and gentleness and patience. Pray that that would just dominate this church. Ephesians 4, 2, it would happen everywhere. Lord, I just pray you would build that culture within the church and that, Lord, it would begin to also infect the way that we interact with others outside the church, in our neighborhoods and workplaces. And that, Lord, all of this would get traced back to the core truth, to the axiom that you have rescued us through the blood of Jesus and therefore you have broken down the wall of hostility. 
Lord, in our world that is so divided right now, Lord, in our world that is, um, when the rhetoric that is occurring in our world is just so charged, it's so amped up, and it's so inappropriate, especially from our leaders, Lord, would you just let the church shine brightly in the midst of all of that? Would you help us to get over our differences and help us to get over the things that frustrate us with one another? And would you let the gospel just rule here? So Lord, we pray for this. We ask that you would give us the ability to do this, Lord. Father, we love you. We pray as we end this time in song that you would just be glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name.